Well, good morning, Element. <laughs> I'm Steve Pruitt. It's my honor to fill in this week uh, for Aaron and to uh, share God's word with you. Uh, there is one more announcement that I will forget unless I get it out uh, early, and that is that uh, today is the last day to do your donations to the Restore Ukraine project. That uh, Restore Ukraine is a nonprofit that was created here in Santa Maria in response to the ongoing struggles in the Ukraine. And uh, we've been collecting boxes of uh, non-perishable food and putting them in a shipping container for the last few months. Today is the last day to drop off your boxes. That shipping container is over there. You've probably seen it in the parking lot over there. And uh, if you forgot to bring yours today, bring it by later this afternoon and we'll be sure to get it into the container. Okay? If you uh, have a Bible with you, it will be good for you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some in underneath the uh, seats in front of you in the little rack there, and you're welcome to borrow one or take one or whatever. Uh, <clears throat> also, uh, the notes for this, there aren't handout notes, but there are some notes in that uh, prayer booklet that uh, you've been given. And if you don't have one of those, there are some at the tables. You're welcome to just get up and grab one if you need to. Uh, also, one of the ways to follow along is by using the app, the Bible app, which um, you can just open the app, click on more and events, and then Element should come up via GPS, and you can follow along with the message that way. <clears throat> Today, we're going to take a look at a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. And as we start out, why don't we just um, stand and we'll read the prayer together. It's sometimes called the Lord's Prayer, sometimes called the Our Father, and sometimes called the Disciples' Prayer, which is probably the most accurate way to label it. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Read with me. You can read aloud, and we'll do it together. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Thank you. You can be seated. Did you notice the little corrections as some people are doing it from memory from other translations? <laughs> that was kind of cool. Uh, you might have noticed that I left off the phrase, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That was included in the King James Version, and it became the most popular way of saying the prayer. But as older, more reliable manuscripts were discovered, that part was not actually found. And so 
to preserve the integrity of the newer translations, many of the translators decided to leave that out or to put it in the margin. You might find it a little footnote on it and a little uh, addition in your margin that shows that it could have been there. Uh, there just isn't enough evidence in the oldest manuscripts to support putting it in there. There's nothing actually wrong with it. In fact, it kind of summarizes the whole prayer, and it's good. If you want to throw it in there, it's, it's, just, it's wonderful. It kind of wraps up the prayer very nicely. Now, this wasn't the only model prayer that Jesus gave us. All throughout his ministry, he taught on prayer, and it was usually by just praying. He prayed where his disciples could hear him, and then sometimes he went off to pray by himself, sometimes even at inconvenient times when they were just left by themselves. It was just that important to him. And then he would come back, and some amazing things would happen, and I can't help but think that the disciples had to get that connection. There are two different settings where uh, Jesus teaches on this particular prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, which we're going to spend most of our time on today, Jesus is in the middle of a teaching time, and he brings up the topic of prayer in the middle of the message and also at the end in chapter 7. But just before he gets into the prayer in Matthew chapter 6, he talks about how not to pray. And Aaron, as he was setting up the tea last week, and I'm hoping I don't hit this into a sand trap, but uh, as he was setting it up, he talked about how not to pray. And, and in Matthew 6, the prayer we're going to study today is prefaced by this. It's basically, don't pray to impress others, don't use empty repeats, don't use flowery words. In Luke 11, where the prayer also appears, it was probably later in Jesus' ministry, and the teaching there is in response to the disciples actually saying, Lord, teach us to pray. And that could be actually why that prayer is a little bit longer. It's funny, you know, as far as we know, the disciples never asked Jesus to teach them how to prophesy or how to cast out demons or how to preach or how to witness or how to lead their families. But they did ask him to teach them how to pray. Probably because they kept seeing Jesus praying before big events and praying before he did just about anything. So they knew how important it just must be to be able to communicate with God in that way. But to them, just like us, it just did not come naturally. So we have two instances where Jesus gave instructions using this particular prayer, and it does seem to be on different occasions and two slightly different prayers. Now, some who are quick to criticize the Bible might think that there's a discrepancy between what Matthew records and what Luke writes, but I think if we see them as different teaching times, 
It makes sense. Every time I teach, whether it's the exact same passage or whatever, I always go through and I tweak it, and it's never exactly the same. And I think that uh, that's what's happening here. It's at different teaching times. It could also be that in Jesus' mind, the exact wording of the prayer is not nearly as important as the attitude and the approach. And those stay the same between both of the instances of this prayer. So, first, I want to make some observations with you about the prayer in Matthew 6. Uh, It starts not with my Father, but our Father. And so it seems to be a, a corporate prayer or a public prayer. You don't see uh, my, me, I anywhere in the prayer. It's a prayer that they were to pray together. They did ask Jesus, teach us to pray. And so it's uh, specifically a corporate prayer. But even though it is that, we're going to see that there's some helpful instruction for us in our personal prayers as well that, that totally apply to us. Another observation of the prayer, about this prayer, is that it is corrective. And you might not catch this in a, a quick reading of it. The disciples, though, were all excited about the idea that Israel's kingdom was about to be restored because they see that their Messiah has arrived. He has come to make things right and to deliver them. But Jesus lets them know that they shouldn't be praying about their kingdom coming, their will being done, their desire to see their enemies defeated. It wasn't about them. They were to put God's interests ahead of their own. Just a few minutes later in the chapter, in verse 33, very uh, familiar passage, it says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. That's still on the subject of prayer. So this prayer is in some ways corrective. Another observation about the prayer is that it is concise in both places it appears it is short and sweet it gets to the point and it leaves it there some people think that the time we spend in prayer is what counts but what counts with God is that you say what's on your mind and if it's a lot that's on your mind then just keep saying it until you pour out your whole heart absolutely but if it's just a quick prayer for help, then by all means, just say what you need to say. You don't need to have a lot of build up or logic or buttering up before you actually just say what's on your mind. God does not need all of that. When Stephen, who was the first martyr, was um, being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, he prayed with zero fluff zero preface he just said Lord Jesus receive my spirit and Jesus answered that prayer right away it's somewhat unfortunate but uh, it was fortunate for Stephen because he went right into the presence of the Lord so the amount of time or the amount of words is not a high priority I have a feeling that the father gets our drift pretty quickly 
and doesn't need a whole lot of uh, rationale or, or flowery fluff as we're pl- praying. In Psalm 139, David says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. And here it is. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Before you even articulate it, he gets it. I learn here from David in this psalm that he knows me. He knows my thoughts from afar which may mean from afar in the past or whatever. And before a word even hits my tongue, he already knows it. So there is really no reason for me to go into eloquent presentations as I talk to God about my needs or about different things. There's no need for lengthy arguments to help God understand what I'm talking about and how important it is. Uh, He knows all of that and so much more. There's also no need for endless repeats, as Aaron shared so well last week, because God gets the gist pretty quickly. He's kind of smart in that way. So those are some observations about the prayer as we start off. The prayer is a corporate or public prayer, but also has carryover into our private prayers. It's corrective in that it's teaching the disciples to pray not for their own goals or Israel's glory, but for God's goals and his glory, not their own kingdom, but for God's kingdom. The prayer is also concise. It doesn't have a lot of fluff. It just gets it done and then it's done. Now let's get down to the prayer itself and just kind of walk through the phrases uh, and uh, it gives us some specifics here on how to pray. Jesus starts with an initial address and then there are actually seven requests in the prayer. The first three requests are about the name and the cause of God and the other four are about personal needs. So we'll walk through them one at a time. First one, It's just opening the conversation by addressing God. It says, our Father. Now, whenever we pray, we should take a moment to remember who it is we're talking to. You're not talking to the crowd. You're not just talking to yourself or or having a moment of silence, which I don't really get that, but some people do that. You're talking to your creator and your Father. Addressing God as Father would have seemed unusual to this Jewish audience, maybe even flippant for them to think of it. They would have no problem calling him God Almighty or the Lord or all kinds of other titles that they were used to calling, but they usually didn't think of him as the Father of individuals. So when Jesus says that they should think of him and speak to him as Father, that spoke volumes. That was a big deal. One commentator says this about Jesus' statement about uh, addressing God as Father. He says, Do not look upon God as a distant and cold abstraction or as some blind force. Do not regard him as being hostile to you or as careless about you, but look upon God as your Father, your living, loving, heavenly Father. 
and then step up with a holy boldness into the child place and all heaven opens before you there. Isn't that beautiful? God is our inviting and loving and helpful Father, and that's how he wants to be addressed. It's not that we have to always do that. Oops, I forgot to say Father. In fact, some people, when they pray, they say Father God about every four syllable. And Father God, we pray that Father God, you will help us, Father God, you know, as if God who forgot that you were talking to him or something. <laughs> but um, we don't always have to do that. But the point here is that we get to do that. That would be amazing to the disciples as Jesus is saying, hey, pray this way. Call him your dad. The beautiful thing here is that if God wants to be addressed as father, that means he wants more than a rulership over us. He wants a relationship with us. That's incredible to me. I don't know why he would want to do that, but... He does. And when we go through all of those elaborate ways of addressing God to try to get his attention, I can just see him sitting there, maybe tapping his fingers, smiling. And then when we're finally done and out of breath with all of our names that we call him, he says, hey, you had me at Father. Yet here in the next phrase... Jesus says, call him our Father in heaven. We're also called to remember that he is in heaven, that he's over all of heaven, that he's the almighty ruler of everything uh, and the universal king of all kings and Lord of all lords. Father in heaven, that he's in heaven, should remind you of that, that it also who it is that you're talking to. We have to keep that in balance in our hearts as we pray. Yes, we are talking to an inviting, helpful, loving father who wants nothing but the best for us, but we're also talking to the almighty, holy God who is king over everything. So have a little respect, right? Don't slap him on the back and say, hey, bud, respect him. He has the power to rule over the whole universe, and he never relinquishes that power. That's who you're addressing. That should actually accentuate the, the privilege that we have to call him father. He is our father who is the king. The next phrase also reminds us who we're talking to. It says, hallowed be your name. It's actually a request. It, it, it would be more accurate to say, may your name be hallowed. May you be respected and revered for who you are and what you do. The Jews already had a very high respect for the name of God. In fact, they had such a high respect for his name that they came to the place where they felt that their lips were not even worthy to utter his name. Ultimately, they came to a place where uh, they felt like their minds were not even uh, worthy to think of the full name of God. So when the scribes were copying the scriptures and they came to the name of God, instead of writing out his name, Yahweh, Jehovah, Yahweh, um, they would just write the consonants, Y, V, 
Y-H-V-H. Good luck trying to pronounce that. And that was the point. Don't even try to pronounce his name. That's what they thought. It is said that before the scribes uh, would even write those consonants, the Y-H-V-H, in their manuscript, they would take a bath, they would put on fresh clothes, they would take a new pen, dip it in fresh ink, and then write those consonants, Y-H-V-H. Just think how clean you'd be if it was like you had to do it four times in one passage. Just like, oops, there it comes again, back in the shower, you know. It'd be kind of tough. So anyway, today we're not really sure exactly how to pronounce God's name, whether it's Jehovah or Yahweh or Yahweh. Um, But however you pronounce it, your attitude should be, Lord, may your name be respected and revered in the world and in my own heart. We should never lose that respect for who God is. The next phrase is your kingdom come. Now, there's some discussion as to whether this is talking about a literal kingdom of God that is coming to earth or about God's rule in our hearts today. Uh, Well, I I think it's valid to pray about both but I think that this is actually looking to the heavens for the second coming and the fulfillment of God's promises and the establishment of Christ's kingdom here on the earth. And in that way, as we pray, it's kind of a a statement of faith that we're looking forward to seeing the Lord come. These crazy times that we're living in are pretty confusing and scary. And if you're anything like me, you can get all absorbed in the hopelessness and the downward spiral as the world seems to be kind of circling the drain. But as believers, we are called to get out of the swirl, lift our eyes, and long for the deliverance and the righteous ruling kingdom that God is bringing eventually to the earth where Jesus will rule as king for a thousand years and then it will segue right into eternity where God is ruler over everything and there is no more sin, no more sorrow, all of that stuff. That We have that privilege to pray like that. So as we pray, we pray your kingdom come, not ours. Now, the next phrase is where the ruling of God in hearts might come in. It says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, it's interesting that in the Greek, the phrase on earth as it is in heaven actually modifies all three statements. Hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as as it is in heaven, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's linked all the way. And here we learn that praying for the plan and the purpose and the will of God is to be at the center of our prayers. Not my will, but his. Even Jesus, when he was praying in the garden, dreading what physically what was about to happen to him and the separation from the Father, the physical thing and all of that, he's, you know, remember he prayed, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way, let's do it that way. But he ended his prayer with, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. 
Well, the next request is for personal needs. It says, give us this day our daily bread. This is pretty obvious. It's a prayer for God's supply of what we need. It's a declaration of dependence. And uh, it's not saying, make me rich, like the name it and claim it preachers will tell you to pray. It's saying, help me with my immediate needs. As D.A. Carson says, uh, the prayer is for our needs, not our greeds. Back when Jesus said this to this group, that most people were actually living from day to day and a worker was supposed to receive his wages at the end of the day so that he could buy food for supper that night. And even just a few days of sickness could be tragic, earth-shattering for a person who didn't get that daily supply because they were living literally day to day. Today, most of us aren't living from day to day, which is great, but uh, it makes it even harder for us to remember that the Lord is our provider. Uh, The almighty paycheck is not your provider. The donations that you live off or whatever, they're not your provider. It is him. And it's sometimes hard to remember that every single day, Everything that we have and that we get is coming from the hand of a Heavenly Father who meets our daily needs. It might seem a little bit odd that God wants us to ask for our needs like this. Um, It's not that he needs to be reminded. Um, That's not why we pray. In fact, later in the chapter in the same message Jesus says in verses 31 to 33 and I've read some of this do not be anxious saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So obviously, God doesn't need to be made aware of our needs. That's not the point. Lord, uh, hello, I need something. It's not that. But sometimes, even though he knows your needs, and even though he intends to meet your needs, he'll wait until you start to pray. He does that. So obviously, um, it is to keep us reminded that we are dependent on him, and that he is the source of everything that sustains us. He wants us to walk with him and to communicate with him. He wants us to do that, and he wants to walk with us, and he wants to meet our needs. He delights in taking care of the people he created. What kind of a creator father would not want that unless he was evil? He wants us to make our request because he delights in hearing from his children. It's hard for us to get that in our heads sometimes. The next request is about forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, Have any of you ever gotten nervous reading this? It's It's a little strange. Some translations translate 
debts as transgressions or trespasses or sins. So the disciple here is to ask God to forgive debts or sins. What can that mean? Well, looking at the big picture of the Bible, which is always a good thing to do, it can't mean that we're, one, asking God to forgive our loans or make it so we don't have to pay what we owe. It, it can't be that. We don't say, God, please make it so I don't have to pay my mortgage or my taxes this year. Um, that would be nice, but no, that's not it. Romans 13 says very clearly, pay what you owe, right? And if it's talking about debts, then it's got to be talking then about wrongs done. Like when a criminal, we say, has a debt to society, it has to be talking about that. So also, though, looking at the big picture of the Bible, it can't mean that the one who trusts in Christ needs eternal judicial forgiveness all over again. The clear passages that teach on our salvation show us that we're not eternally saved by forgiving others. We are saved as we trust Jesus and what he's done for us in paying the debt of our sin, period. Colossians 2.13 says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins. That's past tense. It already happened. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Past tense. That is judicial, eternal forgiveness. Past tense, done deal for the one who puts his or her trust in what Jesus has done for them. So this forgiveness then in the Lord's Prayer has to be more like parental forgiveness, a relaxing and a restoration of the personal relationship that we have with our Father. The psalmist says in uh, Psalm 16, 18, if I had harbored sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. It doesn't say, if I harbored sin in my heart, the Lord would have sent me straight to hell. It says the Lord would not have listened. It's not that he can't hear us, but our sin gets in the way of our communication and our relationship to our loving Heavenly Father who has already forgiven us. It blocks that. You, can say, you could say, it doesn't separate us eternally but it can separate us experientially David prayed in Psalm 52 restore to me the joy of my salvation not my salvation but the joy of my salvation that's why we need to confess to restore the joy of our salvation to clear up the line of communication with our father not to actually restore our salvation you're not in and then out and in and then out no but your communication gets messed up when we trust Christ as our savior God begins to deal with us as his children when he finds a hard heart or an unforgiving spirit in us he will chastise us as much as he needs to until we're broken and brought back into fellowship with himself. Sometimes it's just silence on his end. 
Sometimes it's just a sense of distance that we have or a sense, sense of shame. Sometimes if we're not paying attention to the subtle stuff that he does, he'll ramp it up and he'll do whatever needs to happen to restore that relationship because that's his first priority with us as his children. He, when he does that, he's not being a punishing jub, judge, but a faithful father. So as we pray, we can confess our sins and pray for restoration of our fellowship, our relationship, and our joy. And that is a good thing, and it's important. The next phrase we come to can also be confusing where it says, lead us not into temptation. My first reaction to that is, well, as if God would actually do that. But it, that's just what it says. Here's the issue. We know, thinking big picture and clear passages, we know from our study in James, was it last year? Was it earlier this year? Anyway, not too long ago. That God never tempts or lures people to sin. And so again, when we come to a confusing passage like this that suggests that maybe he might do that, we go to the clear passages to find the base teaching on the subject. James 1.13 is one of the clear passages on temptation. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Can't get any clearer than that. This isn't an option. So that's the straight truth. God never tempts us. So if that's true, then what, what's Jesus saying when he says to pray this? Well, I discovered that this is one of those times when a little grammar helps out. A.T. Robertson, a Greek scholar who I've always respected, says this. Here we have a permissive imperative, as grammarians term it. The idea is then, do not allow us to be led into temptation. It's not actually saying don't lead us into temptation. Don't, don't allow us to be led into temptation. Now that makes sense. Don't lead us means don't let us be led. Don't let us get sucked in when temptation comes our way. Protect us. Stop us. Deliver us. Temptation can be thrown at you as it was thrown at Jesus, but it's not sin unless you get drawn into it and you start to follow it. There's a saying out there that I've always liked that you can't keep a bird from landing on your head, but you can keep it from building a nest. And that's kind of the way temptation is. It may come at you, but as soon as you engage with it and you allow it to dominate your thinking, that's when it, of course, will become sin. And here, the prayer is then, Lord, come to my aid when I'm tempted before I start moving in that direction or before my heart is deceived or before I do anything about it. Do whatever you need to, Lord, to protect me because I know I'm vulnerable. And then this leads to the last request. It's kind of connected, so I'll just go right to it. It says, but deliver us from evil, or the evil one, as some of your translation, it can actually mean either. The little word but here is important. 
in that it links this statement to the last and states the same thing, the lead us not into temptation, in a positive way, but deliver us from evil. Keep us from falling into temptation and deliver us before we get caught up in evil um, or before we succumb to the temptations even of the evil one. And as we pray and as we walk, we should be constantly aware of our own tendency to wander and to fall into sin. As soon as you get cocky, you're done. We ask God to keep us from following temptation, even if we might actually want to do it. Stop me, Lord, early on, before the magnetic pull gets so strong that I don't have the strength to back away. This part of the prayer teaches us that we should always have a healthy distrust of our own strength against temptation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Soon as you think you're hot stuff and strong, you're the most vulnerable. So remember that you may be redeemed, but you're still vulnerable. And apart from his help, you are still prone to fall. So this is the Lord's Prayer. And for us as believers 2,000 years later, it's still very helpful at least as we learn to pray. It's not a prayer just to recite over and over again, but a pattern and an approach to prayer. It should challenge us when we pray, first of all, to stay God-focused in our prayers. Focus on his position as Father and as ruling Lord Focus on his will, on his purposes and mission, his daily forgiveness as our father, his daily provision, and his constant protection. If you don't know what to pray or how to pray, just pick one of those and give it your best shot. Just start. Just talk to him about it. He is just there leaning toward you saying, just talk to me and we'll work it out. Okay, we're going to leave it there for this morning. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. Each week after the message, our tradition is to segue into a worship time and a time of communion. And uh, today, as you come to these tables of communion, there are our elements here and in the back. Um, my challenge to you is to focus on... I need to get out of your way. Someday I'm going to get this. Thank you. <laughs> I'd like you to focus as you come to communion today on why you can call God your Father there's something that transacted in order for you to be able to do that. You can address him as father because he gave you his only son to pay the debt of your sin so that you could become his son or daughter. So as you take the bread and the juice, remember that 
Uh, it's all about your heavenly father's work for you. Thank him as your heavenly father who's ruling over the universe and all that. Thank him that he came to earth in the person of his son so that you could have a perfect qualified savior. The bread reminds us of his body that was broken. The blood reminds us of the price of our redemption. And so the juice and the crackers represent that as you do it. So just be thinking about that as you do um, participate in communion today. He has kept you from being under his judgment to being reconciled to him. He has adopted you as his child and it is all because of the gospel, all because of what Jesus has done as he paid the debt of your sin. So remember that today as you have communion. Shall we pray together? Father in heaven, we're so amazed that we get to call you that, our, our heavenly father. And that as our father, we know that you're both the source of our lives and the one who walks with us, protects us, and provides for us every single day. Help us to get better at communicating with you, Lord. We stumble a lot when we talk to you. And we say things that are rough and unpolished. And we ask for things that you really shouldn't give us sometimes. But I'm so glad that you cut through all of our mistakes and weird requests and stumbling. And you see our hearts. And you give us what we really need every time. Help us learn how to focus on your name, your kingdom, and your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Be our strength against temptation and turn our hearts back in your direction when we blow it and sin or even when we just get off track. We love you, Father, and we're glad that you love us too because of your son, Jesus, who's brought us into your family. In his name we pray. Amen.